Thank you, Sally. Can you guys hear me okay? Are the fans too loud or can you hear it okay? We're good? All right. Fans are good. Let's keep the fans. Friends, if you know, if you were with us last week, last Sunday began the season that's called Ordinary Time, where the church around the world, as we've said already, remembers together that God is just as present and just as active in the ordinary events of today as he was in the extraordinary events in the Bible. So along with that, last Sunday we began our summer preaching series on the book of Esther, in a series I'm calling The Hidden Hand of God. Because famously, if you didn't know this, the book of Esther never mentions the name of God, which is pure literary genius, that the main character of the book is never named and yet is at work on every single page. And I love this. This, this book gives the church, uh, in my opinion, an, an indispensable tool for life in a secular age, life in a secular world, and that is the ability to see the hidden hand of God at work in unlikely places, through unlikely people, through seemingly insignificant events. That's what the book of Esther is, is all about. And you know what? I had an, uh, Let me give you an example from my life just this past week where I was like working with these themes of the hidden hand of God at work. So on Wednesday, my older two children, Jackson and Olivia, got their second dose of the vaccine, and it made me start thinking about all the, uh, the vaccine social media posts. You've seen those, maybe you've done those, you know, that's whichever way you want to do that, that's great. But if you notice, some people like post a picture of a needle in their arm and they write, thank you, science. And then some people post the very same picture, but they write, thank you, God. So which is it? Who is responsible for the miracle of the vaccine? Is it science or is it God? Friends, it's the book of Esther tells you, you don't have to choose. Because God works through science. He works through means. He works through ordinary and also not so ordinary things like doctors and medicine and technology. Who is it that created messenger RNA anyway, right? See, maybe God is working miracles all the time. We just don't see it because he's simply using ordinary means. Friends, that's why we need the book of Esther. So last week, to recap, in Esther 1, we saw how the hidden hand of God was working even through the heart of a pagan king. We met the Persian king, Ahasuerus, or in history better known as Xerxes I. And he seems to have all the wealth and the power and control to do whatever he pleases. But things are not always as they seem. Because as we saw last week, the heart of King Xerxes is like water in the hand of the true king, our God, who turns it wherever he pleases. And we saw that God is sovereign over Xerxes' drunken decision to exploit his wife, Queen Vashti, for the entertainment of his guests at a party. And he is sovereign over Vashti's sober decision to say no, perhaps for the first time refusing to be objectified by the king. And he is sovereign over the king's wise men's cunning decision to banish Vashti from the kingdom, from ever entering into the presence of Xerxes again. She is sent away into exile and thus opening up the door for a new queen to replace her, which God will sovereignly fill with a Hebrew named Esther to put her in just the right place at just the right time to save her people from destruction. Spoiler alert, that's where the story's going. But the point is, in chapter one, earthly rulers, whether they're Persian kings or American presidents, are no obstacle to God working out his purposes for the good of his people. 
So this week, we come to Esther 2, and we get to see how Esther becomes queen. But brothers and sisters, it is not quite the heroic story you might have heard in Veggie Tales. <laughs> Esther may not be a hero at all, as we'll see. Last week, God is sovereign over sovereigns. This week, he is sovereign even over sinful decisions. And that is a great comfort to us. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? It's Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Susa, the citadel, under, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away when Je with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were, were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her, in her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was, what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations of the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of, of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashkaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, as she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to, to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let me pray for the preaching of God's Word. Father, I thank you for your Word, and I thank you for your Spirit, which helps us now to understand your Word. And for myself, I ask that my speech and my message would not be implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So be seated, please. Friends, I want you to see two things in this passage this morning. Number one, that everyone is compromised, that everyone is compromised. But number two, sovereign grace abounds over compromise. So point one, everyone is compromised. Point two, sovereign grace abounds over compromise. So first, everyone is compromised. Friends, the way chapter two unfolds is the author is showing you that everyone, absolutely everyone in this story is compromised. What I mean by that is corrupted morally inconsistent, living at odds with their most basic convictions, a sellout, if you would. Everyone is compromised, and what I'm going to try to prove to you is that you and I are too. Let's start with King Xerxes. Notice the King Xerxes himself, or King Ahasuerus, I'm using the easier form to say than Ahasuerus. Notice that he is, he is compromised, which is, might not be all that surprising based upon the character we saw in chapter 1, right? When the curtain opens on chapter 2, it has been four years since he banished Queen Vashti. And in those four years, Xerxes has suffered a humiliating military defeat at the hands of the Greeks. Highlighted by the famous 300 battle. You remember the, the movie, the 300 Spartan, the, the brave Spartan warriors who held off Persia's army just long enough so the Greek army could re reassemble their forces and defeat the larger Persian army. So in chapter 2, Xerxes returns home to Susa. He's, he's defeated. He's brooding. He's bitter over a lost war. And then notice his thoughts start to turn to a lost wife. Verse 1 says that the king remembered Vashti, whom he had banished four years before. Now, the author doesn't say so directly, but perhaps there's a twinge of regret in what happened, right? Maybe he wishes that he didn't send her away with an irrevocable decree. But friends, we don't want the, the king feeling bad things, right? We don't want him feeling remorse, and so the young men attending him spring into the action. And they say, let's distract the king with his favorite thing, sex, women. They come up with a plan, let's hold an empire-wide empire beauty pageant. Let's round up the most beautiful virgins in every province. Let's bring them into the harem and the citadel in Susa. We'll give them the best makeup, the best food. For 12 months, we'll prepare them for a one-night audition with the king. Whichever girl pleases him the most will be made queen in Vashti's place. This idea, surprisingly, pleases the king. He likes this idea. See, Vashti refused the king's order, and she was sent away. Now, all the women of the empire will be brought to him. None of them can refuse. Friends, this is like The Bachelor, Persia edition, right? Except that it's no game at all. It's no game. What's described here is legalized, institutionalized sex trafficking and rape. That's what it is. 
young girls, probably 14 years old, are ripped from their families to disappear into the citadel. All of them will be victimized. One will be chosen as queen, but the rest would live the rest of their lives in the harem. Because after the king had you, no one else could have you. It would be a life, it would be a luxurious life, but it would be a lonely, desolate life with no hope of marriage or a family. Friends, the empire is not a safe place for a woman. And actually, it's not that much better for a man. Notice young boys in the empire would be taken into the service of the king as well. Either they'd be sent off to fight his battles in war, or they'd be castrated to serve as a eunuch in the king's courts without threat of meddling with the king's women. Right? A couple of eunuchs are mentioned in our text today. Because all this is painting a picture, right? Even, even if we start with a low, low standard for what a king should be. But even if we're already at a low standard for this power-hungry pagan king named Xerxes, this is even lower, right? This is worse. Xerxes is even more compromised. This is a picture of an empire of people who only exist to please the king, who are completely at his disposal, subject to his depraved ways. Historians say that Xerxes was so out of control during this time he was so sexually promiscuous that he even slept with the wives of his officials, which eventually led to his assassination in his own bed. This is the king, King Xerxes, and this, he's compromised, and it's easy for us to sit in judgment over Xerxes, isn't it? <laughs> and we imagine that we're different, that we would do things differently if we were in the same situation. We wouldn't compromise. We wouldn't use our power and our money only to satisfy our lusts. But brothers and sisters, a $97 billion pornography industry worldwide would beg to differ. Where we gather women and men from all over the world to ourselves so that we can use them however we want. A $55 billion cosmetic industry reveals that we too are still judging women based upon their, their appearance, their beauty, the shape of their figure. We have television shows that are basically ripped from the very plot of Esther 2, where women will do whatever it takes to win the favor of a man, or at least win fame, right? We have technologies that with one swipe, you can have your one-night audition and figure out if you want to call them back or send them away forever. Similarities are striking, aren't they? Between the, the, the compromised king and, and the Persian Empire and the American Empire, they're devastating. Because we too live in a compromised world. So King Xerxes is compromised, but perhaps we expected that. How about the people of God? How about the people of God living in Susa? Surely they are uncompromised, right? In verse 5, we meet one of them. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now a couple of things that would jump off the page to the original readers. First of all, Mordecai has a rich ancestry. He's the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who is related to King Saul, the very first king of Israel. 
He's not a great king, but he was a king, right? And Mordecai has this royal lineage. He's the great, 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 great grandson of King Saul. But the other thing they would jump off is that his name is Mordecai. That's not a Jewish name. That's a Persian name. It's a Persian name. He's named in honor of the Persian god Marduk. So you get in the picture, right? A great ancestor of King Saul is named after a foreign god. That's strange. That's not normal. Furthermore, he doesn't live in Susa the city. He lives in Susa the citadel, which means he works in King Xerxes' administration. And by the way, he only lives in Susa because verse 6 tells us that all the people of God were carried there by the Babylonians because the whole nation was compromised before God and sent into exile. Because all of these details are telling you that Mordecai is a compromised man. He lives in a foreign land. He's named after a foreign god. He's in service to a foreign king. Just that sentence, a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, that's a scandalous sentence to a Jew. And sure enough, Mordecai is shown to be compromised. Verse 7 tells us he's raising his cousin, Esther, because she was orphaned when her father and mother died. So Mordecai is like Esther's father. So what would a faithful Jewish father do when he learns that the king is drafting all the beautiful virgins of the empire into his harem, including your daughter? What do you do? You resist, right? You resist. You fight it. You hide her. You marry her off real quick. You send her away, maybe back to Jerusalem where some of the exiles have already gone back. Right? You should rather die than send her to the horrors of the harem. But that's not what he does. Verse 10 indicates that perhaps Mordecai is actually behind the plot, giving her instructions to hide her Jewish identity. He's an insider. Maybe he instructed her in how to win the favor of Haggai. Maybe he instructed her how ultimately to win the favor of the king himself. As to be clear, the text is silent about his motives. It doesn't tell us. Because it doesn't tell us, it's not good. It doesn't look good. By all appearances, Mordecai gave his own daughter to the king's twisted beauty pageant because he is a compromised man. How about us? We'd like to think that we wouldn't be like Mordecai, right? If you are a Christian, you are also living in this tension between resisting the secular culture and assimilating into it. And we like to think that we would resist when the time was appropriate. We would refuse to assimilate. We like to think that we would be in the world, but not of the world. But brothers and sisters, things like the divorce rate, which is nearly identical between Christians and non-Christians, reveals a different story. It's often difficult to see any discernible difference in the lives of Christians. Right, we're just as likely to be racist just as likely to abuse positions of power, just as likely to be a jerk on social media, right? We even brought the values of the world right into the church. <laughs> We're just as obsessed with entertainment, with, with the cult of celebrity, with novelty, right? Friends, we're no different. We're just as compromised as Mordecai. 
Which brings us to Esther herself, right? The book's namesake. Here's hope. Maybe she's different. Maybe she's just a pawn in this whole thing. Maybe she's just a victim at the mercy of her cousin and the king. Again, friends, silence is the interpretive key. Because what's curiously absent in, in this from Esther is any protest herself. Notice when we first meet her, the only thing we are told about her is that she had a beautiful figure and that she was lovely to look at. I know how that sounds. But when a biblical author only gives you one detail about a character, they're, they're telling you something. Esther is beautiful, and that's about it. She's, she's one-dimensional. She's shallow. And she will use what she has to get what she wants. She uses her beauty and her charm to win the favor of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the women. She uses her beauty and her charm to win the favor of the king. Friends, when the text says in verse 17 that the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, that means what you think it means. That on her one night with the king, she pleased him more than all the others. You might be thinking, but did she really have a choice? Right? She's a young woman in a powerful man's world. But if you compare Esther to the other biblical figures who found themselves in similar situations, the answer is clear. Take Daniel. He too lived in a foreign land and was forced into the service of a foreign king, but when he was offered the food of the palace, he refused and ate only what was allowed by the law of God. Esther, on the other hand, seems to have no problem enjoying the king's delicacies for a whole year. Daniel, when the king made a law that would make him violate the law of God, he refused to obey such a law. While Esther doesn't protest sleeping with and ultimately marrying a pagan king, both of which violate God's laws. Right, Daniel made it clear that he serves the God of Israel while Esther hides her faith in her Jewish identity. See, friends, Daniel would rather die than compromise his faith. It's like, throw me to the lions, throw me in the fiery furnace. While Esther, beautiful Esther, she kind of goes along with the flow. Brothers and sisters, she's just as compromised as everyone else. It's complicated, she's compromised. What seals it is that Esther has two names. Did you notice that? Her Jewish name is Hadassah, which means myrtle, which is a, it alludes to being righteous, uncompromisingly righteous and faithful. But her Persian name is Esther. She's named after the Persian goddess of love and war named Ishtar. See her two names, two names indicate she's living in two worlds. And in the tension between those two worlds, she has compromised too. She's more Esther than Hadassah. And again, friends, we would like to think that we would be better than Esther. That we wouldn't be living a double life like her. But if we're, on, if we're honest, you and I both also hide our faith, don't we? At work, with our neighbors. We hide our Christian identity, only, only bring it out when the stakes are really, really, really low. It's like we too have two names, 
doesn't it? Two identities, two worlds, and we can way too easily switch between the two. You guys get it. Esther, too, is telling us that everyone is compromised, even you and me. We have all made sinful decisions that we regret, some big, some small, but all of them offensive to God's love. We all face the daily tension of resisting or assimilating into the culture, and we, we're all embarrassed about how quickly and easily we can assimilate. We all feel like the, there are two people living inside of us, right? Jekyll and Hyde. One that loves God's ways and another that rebels against them. One that does what we do want to do and another that does what we don't want to do, right? We feel it. A war raging within our very souls. And so we too cry out with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Brothers and sisters, thankfully the sentence doesn't end there. Because the next verse says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the bad news is that we have all felt the sting of compromise. You know what the good news is? Is that sovereign grace abounds over compromise. Sovereign grace abounds over our compromises. Remember Esther's Jewish name, Hadassah? Some scholars believe that that might actually be a title from an Akkadian word that means bride. If so, it means that Esther is God's bride. And this is her deepest and truest identity. Friends, even while she is compromised to become Xerxes' bride, she is still the bride of God. See, Esther stands as a representative of all the people of God in all times and places. The church is, is horribly compromised, and yet we are still, still the bride of Christ. And he is uncompromising in his commitment to us. No matter how much you have compromised, you are still God's Hadassah. See, what's, what's so obviously missing in this chapter is someone who would stand up and say, you know what, I would rather die than compromise my faith in God. But the one who will ultimately say this and actually mean it is Jesus Christ. And he's the only one. He says, I would rather die than compromise my faith in God. And he did. He refused to compromise in the desert when he was tempted by Satan to take the easy route. He refused to compromise in the garden as the cross loomed before his eyes. As he never once assimilated, never once sold out, he was perfectly faithful to the end. And he did it all for you. So that the credit, the righteousness, the favor could go to you by faith. He said, I would rather die for your compromises so that you can know that your worst compromises, your worst decisions do not define you. They are forgiven. They are paid in full at the cross. Friends, though you will always feel like Jekyll and Hyde, you will always have this war waging inside of you over resisting or assimilating. Because in Christ, you can know that only one of those is the real you. 
Martin Luther, the reformer, famously said that we are, at the same time, a sinner and a saint. At the very same time, a sinner and a saint, which helps us understand this war waging inside of us. But friends, in God's eyes, the real you is a saint. Because you are covered by Christ's righteousness. You are Christ's bride. Brothers and sisters, how committed is Jesus to his bride? He even takes your sinful decisions, your compromises, and he turns them into good. He uses a compromised Mordecai and a compromised Esther and all these bad decisions in this chapter, and he turns it into good because Esther is made queen. She is installed in the highest place in the kingdom so that God can use her to save her people when the time comes. Friends, hear me. In God's gracious economy, your sinful decisions do not disqualify you for service in God's kingdom. In the great mystery of God's mercy, not even your sin is an obstacle to God working out his purposes for the good of his people. Then then a logical question is, well, should we just keep on sinning so that grace can abound? By no means, friends. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's not who you are anymore. You are Christ's bride. You have won the grace and the favor of the king because of Christ alone. He has chosen you by name. He's given you the rose, if you will. And he is making you into a radiant bride without spot or wrinkle or any blemish on the last day. So no, we don't keep on sinning, but what do we do? Brothers and sisters, we keep on moving. Listen to the conclusion of this section in Karen Job's uh, almost a documentary, commentary. It's a great commentary if you want to read along something I'm reading along with the story of Esther. Get Karen Job's commentary. Listen to what she writes at the end of this section. She says, even if we make the wrong decisions, whether through innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience, our God is so gracious and omnipotent that he is able to use that weak link in a chain of events that will perfect his purposes in us and through us. Esther's story shows us that we can entrust them to the Lord and move on. Guys, that's how you recover from sinful decisions, from compromises. You entrust them to the Lord, and you keep moving, knowing that He is working to bring good from it somehow, some way. Whether it was son, whether it was a sin done to you, like Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, but who would later say to his offenders, "You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good." Or whether it was sin done by you, like the Apostle Paul, who used to murder Christians, but was saved by the mercy of God. He he later wrote, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Friends, you are God's Hadassah, his bride. He is uncompromising in his love and faithfulness to you. In the early 1800s, there was a hymn writer by the name of John Kent, not very well known, but he penned these amazing, amazing words. 
The hymn is called Sovereign Grace Over Sin Abounding. Listen to the first verse. Sovereign grace over sin abounding, ransom souls the tidings swell. It is a deep that knows no sounding, who its breadth or length can tell. On its glories let my soul forever dwell. Brothers and sisters, you and I, though we are so compromised, we will spend an eternity telling the glories of how sovereign grace abounded. Over our compromises, our sins, we will marvel at the way God brought good for us and glory for Him. Right? Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for the truths of your scripture that say that where sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. Thank you, Lord, that though we are compromised, though your church is compromised, though your people are compromised, your grace abounds over it. Because Jesus never compromised. He is uncompromising in his love and his faithfulness to us. Jesus, continue your good work in your bride making us beautiful, taking all of our missteps and turning them into something good and beautiful and glorious. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.